welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. I am your host, Maria Cernat, an academic based in Bucharest, Romania. The co-host of the show, Boyan Stanislavski, was supposed to be here, but since you know that he is a Bulgarian-born Polish journalist, he travels a lot between Poland and Bulgaria, and he is currently flying to Sofia. So unfortunately, he, he couldn't join this uh, interesting discussion and meeting with our special guest, Joseph Tripician, I think it's the correct pronunciation, right? American producer, writer, screenplayer, film director, songwriter. I mean, he has a spectacular career in the media. And uh, he's connected to the Balkans. And actually, because it was in 1997 that he was asked by a name, Yakov Sedlar, that was also a filmmaker, a Croatian filmmaker, personal apprentice of uh, that uh, uh, president Fanyo Tuchman. For the ones that do not know, he is the first president of Croatia right after uh, Yugoslavia split. And he, um, our guest was asked to write a book about this president. And um, as um, you may find out if you follow what uh, he wrote and what the the documentaries he produced, you may see that it didn't go according to the plan. And even though Joe Tripician thought that he was going to be able to write an honest book about the Croatian president, that was not the case. So, and this is very, very interesting, I would think, because um, I think it, it, it was a very clever PR move in the sense that on the part of the Croatian president to contact an American journalist to write a book that offers legitimacy, that offers a good image, that offers access to various media platforms in order to create for yourself a very good image. And let me tell you that in Romania, basically Bulgaria and all over Eastern Europe, this idea of PR was rather new in the sense that I started uh, studying PR in 1997 and I was the first generation in Romania, for example, to even start to even study PR that was completely novel. So uh, do you think it was a clever PR move on the part of, of Fanyo Tuchman? Uh, yes, it certainly was. Um, I'm not certain it was Tuchman's idea. I think it was mostly uh, the idea of Marty Granich, his uh, aide de champ. And uh, although it was a clever idea, it, the execution was really ham-handed. It, it was like they stepped on a rake uh, because, uh, well, the Yakov, even though he was the president's, President Tuchman's personal propagandist, uh, his films were, were quite clunky, uh, quite obvious in their propagandistic, uh, uh, you know, efforts. Uh, he, he gained a, uh, a nickname as the Lenny Riefenstahl of Croatia, uh, but I added, but, but without the talent of that uh, great filmmaker <laughs> and a Nazi collaborator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so um, the PR, the PR, uh, it, you know, consisted of many parts. It was traditional taking advertisement and uh, doing news stories uh, in the American press, 
uh, trying to get tourism back to the country, which was a really good and noble idea after the war, which was, this was two years after the war. And it, and, uh, but it also wanted to, I think that the real reason, I didn't know this at first, the real reason they wanted uh, an American to write the book, uh, as you said, is to give legitimacy to it, but it was also to refurbish Tujman's image in the eyes of the West, because even though the American government uh, had supported Croatia in its uh, efforts to push back against Serbian aggression, and it was America who was um, somewhat principally responsible for uh, forcing uh, Bosnian uh, Muslims and the Serb Croatians to join forces in order to push back against the Serbs. Um, there, there was a, a problem in that uh, they wanted to. This is typical of of many propagandist uh, you know, initiatives. They wanted to refurbish Tuđman's image because Tuđman was deathly afraid of being called to the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague to fence, face uh, sentencing for war crimes. And he, Tuchman, admitted this himself. It's on record and on video, uh, saying to a small group of generals after the war, he says, uh, uh, you, everyone in this room, will be, has to be ready to be called up and to face uh, The Hague. So... so um, the problem is that he was controversial, so it was a clever PR move meant to cover some of his activities and some of the, the I mean, he took part in some, I mean, he was related to death camps, uh, he was related to very controversial, to express it euphemistically, things, so probably he was trying to cover it up. Well, this was really made crystal clear to me when, after I returned from uh, the Balkans and started to work on the book, uh, they really were pushing me to, to get it finished. So it took me about a couple of months uh, to get a, a first draft manuscript. And once I handed it in to Mr. Yakov Sedlar, he called me the following day saying that he wanted to speak about a few topics. Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm meeting with him, and I said, okay, what are the things you want to talk about? He says, oh, we like your book very much, but first to consider making small changes. Okay, what, I asked. And he said, well, first, not to mention anything of the old communist past, because Tojim was a, a, a general under Tito in the former Yugoslavia, and by all accounts, he was significant in in supporting uh, Tito, even though he was jailed twice during the Croatian Spring for uh, the initiative to, uh, you know, push back against the uh, the suppression of the books that he wrote, which expressed Croatian independence, which was verboten under uh, communist Yugoslavia. I said to Yakov, I said, well, if I do that, the book will be very thin. Uh, and I said, okay, what's the, what's, what's the second part? Well, the second part, he says, was to please not to mention anything about the war crimes. I, I said, you know, you can't do that because uh, it's, it's been reported in the New York Times and on various, uh, you know, North American outlets that uh, there has been suspicion at that time that wasn't proven yet that, uh, that Tuchman was, you know, responsible to some degree for the establishment of the uh, the death camps in uh, in Bosnia, and uh, you know, so Yakov says, no, no, we can't do that. Absolutely not. I said, well, I can't, I can't write this book 
because uh, it's going to have my name attached to it. Now, I'd have no credibility because people who at least have some knowledge of the Balkans are going to see that it's, uh, uh, it's just pure propaganda. Uh, so the book was never published. And, um, I, but I did get a, an interesting story, an interesting experience out of it. I bet you got a very interesting experience. <laughs> but uh, tell me... Did they pay you any of the money that they promised? Because uh, they pay, they, they promised a lot of money, and I think it was uh, part of the reasons why you you took the the job. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, yes, uh, fortunately, I had an ironclad uh, contract written by my my attorney, and I received over a period of. Uh, a couple of months, uh, $40,000, uh, which was a life-saving because I was $50,000 in debt at that time. And, uh, and the, the little uh, coda to this whole enterprise was that uh, I played both sides of the fence. At this point in my journey, at the end of the journey when I was handing in the manuscript, I had decided to, to definitely write from my point of view uh, what I saw and what I felt. And... Uh, uh, it was a, it was a trouble because I wanted to give Tuchman his due. I wanted to explain that uh, even though he had this relationship with death camps, even though he had expelled the Serb citizens of Croatia and suppressed free speech, etc., etc., uh, he did. Uh, he was the only person at the time who was able to to defend Croatia and was able to bring it into its own independence. Uh, so so it was a balancing act for me. Uh, but I did, I was able to say to Yakov, uh, to, I said, well, let me consider how I can, uh, maybe, uh, maybe burnish his image a little bit more and have more emphasis on his positives. And, but to do that, I'm going to have to take, you know, another month or two to write. I need another 10,000. He says, okay, sure, you get that. So that's what I was able to squeeze out of him. Again, the manuscript I turned in, which I did honestly try to make it, a little bit more fair and balanced, uh, they rejected. Because I wouldn't cut out the, the, the things about the war crimes. I just couldn't do that and have my name on the book. Of course, of course. But tell us more about the death camps, probably for somebody like me that was like, 14 at that time it um it i think it's it's worth refreshing our memory what were they about yeah. and what do you think was the connection between tujman and the death camps uh the the direct connection was a man named mati granich who was at that time uh the president of the bosnian croats uh and uh Tuchman's goal was always to expand croatia's borders into Bosnia-Herzegovina, principally Herzegovina, because that had access to the Adriatic coast, which was a big income generator uh, for tourism and for shipping, etc. So Bati Granic had a nickname. His nickname was the mobster. And uh, the mobster was fiercely loyal to, to Tuchman. Uh, he died before I got to uh, Croatia, but I did meet uh, with uh, his close advisor, uh, a man that I called in my book, my book, uh, Balkanized at Sunrise, I called him okay. the priest, but I eventually came out and named him uh, Vlado Pogarčić. 
So Vlado Pogarcic was responsible for the public relations of this little um, Croatian Bosnian statelet called Herceg Bosna. Okay, so the mobster, Lati uh, Boban, as I said, uh, as Vlado Pogarcic uh, told me, was fiercely loyal to Tujman. And according to Pogarcic, this was uh, Boban's downfall because when uh, Peter Galbraith, the ambassador to Croatia, had started to exert pressure on Mate Boban, specifically through the international press, where he said mm -hmm. that uh, these these uh, death camps in Bosnia were a disgrace to Croatia and that uh, Mate Boban had to do something about it uh, uh, or else the Americans will take action. Now, the Americans were, were again, the big supporters of Croatia in this war. Uh, the hawks involved, which were Peter Galbraith and Madeleine Albright, uh, were pushing for uh, more uh, to lift the, the sanctions against importation of arms and weaponry. And now you're going to start seeing different parallels to today's uh, situation, situation in Ukraine. But before we get to that, uh, it was uh, important, Pogarchich told me, to realize that that Tujim was the reason for Boban's downfall, the reason that he, quote-unquote, resigned. It was that he fell on his sword to protect Tujman, uh, because okay. uh, Tujman did uh, direct... Uh, Mati Boban did not do anything uh, without Tujman's direct directive. It may have come through down the pipeline through different generals and administrators, but uh, he was the one that set up the death, death camps, and he was the one that took the fall to protect Tujman and protect Tujman's uh -huh, image. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I understand, but what happened? Do, do we have enough data about how many people were actually killed there? Um, I think that the numbers, uh, it's, I don't have them the tip of my tongue or in front of me, but uh, I, we do know that that the war in total was 140,000 deaths and 4 million refugees, and that it took uh, 30,000 uh, tr U.S. troops, uh, along with NATO's peacekeeping commission, uh, to, um, to lead the, uh, the military mission in Bosnia. So the 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 numbers would be you know available online. Again, apologies for not knowing it, but the the whole um, the whole situation there, the the torture, uh, the deaths, and the rapes uh, have been gradually being erased by the current uh, regime, and you'll see each side in this this whole historical uh, revisionistic movement uh, it continues to this day. It started back in 97 with that PR campaign. Uh, so in order to gain more political power, in order to gain more reparations uh, via EU grants and uh, backing from uh, from. European Union from the West, uh, from Britain, United States, etc. There's this game of uh, victimhood. There is this victimhood Olympics happening now, where if you can claim that your side, your country has suffered more, uh, has a higher number of deaths, then 
you win the victimhood of Olympics. You know, you you be able to get more uh, grants from the EU. You're able to to get more political capital, and so that's why you see uh, the erasure of these uh, places where they were death camps. They were they were they were they were schools. They were uh, garages. They were they were hospitals. This is where all these things have happened, and there was a movement. Uh, on the activist front to memorialize them so they're not erased mm -hmm. from, from history. But because of these different factions involved, talking about the Serbs, the Croatians, and the Bosniaks, uh, each side is, is fighting for more victimhood. And so that's why you'll see, for example, two sets of, uh, of books uh, being taught in schools in Bosnia. You know, uh, one from the... Uh, the Croat side and one from the the uh, Bosniak side. It's yeah, a sad yeah, thing. It's it's a fight that's yeah, ongoing. It's yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's like what my producer, my documentary, which which is still in production. It's not finished yet. But she said to me, she grew up. She was about seven during the war. Uh, she said to me that uh, the the war is, is, has continued. It's just the the bombs and the bullets have stopped, but the fighting continues by this the the vitriolic uh, propaganda that exists today. About the propaganda, tell me a little bit uh, about the the sentiment of this, the ideology basically of Tuchman and the the, the people surrounding him. Were they right wing extremists? Were they? Um, hardline nationalists, how would you characterize uh, and the ones that you know participated really in the killings, the tortures, were there people that were right wing, I suppose, and quite xenophobic? Yeah, okay, there's a lot to, to unpack there, so we'll take it from the top. Um, Tuchman always had this grand vision uh, that Croatia, as I mentioned earlier, should uh, expand back to its you know, historical borders, uh, which includes uh, parts of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And uh, he got this um, from his father, because his father was, uh, during the war, okay, the Second World War, remember the partisans were part of the Tito's uh, anti-fascist uh, regime, but also that the Croatians, uh, a, set, a subset of Croatians, uh, were part of the Ustasha. Ustasha was this uh, Nazi-backed statelet in Croatia that was directly uh, financed by a fascist Italy, okay? Short walk across the Adriatic. Uh, the the Ustasha were ultra-Croatian uh, nationalists and were uh, more barbaric by a lot of historic accounts than uh, the actual German Nazis. Uh, where the German Nazis had industrialized mass killing, the Ustasha uh, preferred to do their uh, killing one-on-one, -on -one, axis, etc. Uh, so, as part of uh, Tuchman's uh, bicameral philosophy, uh, he was an official, a partisan soldier. His father was, excuse me, his father was, and uh, he got that. Uh, but he also got from his father the nationalistic tendency that. Uh, the Ustasha uh, was part of the NDH, the National Democratic uh, uh, Nationalist Movement of Croatia, and that was the the overriding goal. It was not anti-fascism; it was pro-Croatian nationalism. 
Uh, and so you see that in in Twitchman's uh, decisions during the war, and you see that in his uh, post-war uh, push for returning the uh, nationalistic symbols of the NDH uh, to renaming street signs after the heroes of the NDH. And you see that in Yakov Sedlar's uh, uh, documentaries of refurbishing, trying to refurbish the image of Antti Pavlich, the leader uh, of the Ustasha. Oh, well, he was just a nationalist, just to try to, to bring back our ancient historical traditions and all this other shit, let's say. Can I say that on the podcast? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think it quite, you know, underlies exactly the, the thing that it is. I mean, it's a very good libel for this type of, you know. And I know because we have it in Romania, the equivalent of this ultra xenophobic and nationalist uh, is the legionnaires. We had the Iron Guard and they were calling themselves the Legionnaires and we saw after 1989 parallel efforts to say that oh these were really very good guys there were just some extreme elements and the killings of the Jews oh they were not so you know and they were trying you know to emphasize the idea that uh, these were actually good people so I see that across the region there is this tendency of trying refurbish and to cast a positive light on the right-wing extremists. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, if you go down to his, okay. uh, Tuchman's immediate uh, uh, cadre of advisors, you see that some are more moderate. Uh, Marty Granich, uh, who was involved uh, in the uh, Dayton Peace Agreement. Uh, but you also see other people uh, uh, who have... Uh, been you know, called to The Hague, uh, mostly some of his generals. And uh, you'll, you'll see that the, the nationalists have, had, have won. Uh, they had the, the, the majority vote in, uh, in terms of the implementation. And again, it was a one-man government. It really all came down from Tuchman and Tuchman's vision. Uh, Tuchman was, by all accounts, an old-timey racist. Uh, he had more in common and felt more fraternity with uh, Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic than he did with the Bosnian leader, Alia Izabegovic. And uh, that, that came into play uh, in Dayton, where uh, it, I always say that uh, you can count the, the, the amount of war crimes committed by by either side by the amount of opportunity they had. Uh, so, for example, Milosevic had control over the JNA, the Yugoslav army, so he had the barracks and he had the ammunition and, and the weaponry. And uh, Croatia had to depend on smuggling uh, guns uh, from Iran, but before that happened, they were just left with some you know, old war, World War II army rifles. Uh, and, of course, Bosnia was squeezed in between uh, the two. That's why you see that the Serbs had the most uh, uh, acts of war crimes, followed by Croatia, followed by Bosnia. No one is uh, is uh, exempt from from fault in this. I, in fact, I I, I know I'm I'm wandering, but my uh, I'll get back to the main qu question that uh, I asked Tuchman in my interview with him directly. I said, uh, 
do you think that war crimes are un, are an unavoidable part of war? And he looked like he was so he was pissed at my question. And he said, you know, these people here uh, are our heroes could not help themselves, you know, and and you, it's unfair to call these. Uh, this was the day before the the uh, the, the creation uh, war criminals suspects were uh, brought to the Hague. Uh, he says, you know, you should not call them um, that, that, you know, criminals, they had not been indicted yet. And if it wasn't for them, Croatia would not have its, its, its freedom today. So that, that I got my answer straight from the horse's mouth, so to say. Twitchman died and, and uh, the new president uh, message took power. They found a secret stash of audio recordings uh, which basically out of Twitchman's mouth says that if it wasn't for these people here, um, you know, we would uh, not have Croatia today. So one side's war heroes are another side's war criminals. And, uh, and, and you see that playing out to this day, you know, back into ancient times. Uh, but to get back to your question, I forgot. I forgot. You asked what were, how many hardliners were there? I hadn't kept it. Yes, yes. The, uh, the I was wondering about, you know, the, the, the atmosphere, what was his, what were his ideas and the surrounding, the people who actually were in charge, yeah. what were they thinking? And also the guy that uh, suggested that you write the book, what was he, how would you characterize him ideologically? Oh, no. Well, he's the doctor. I call him Dr. Tony. Um, I don't think he wants me to mention his name. Uh, but uh, he, his, so he was my doctor at that time. And he was also Yakov's doctor at that time, because Yakov was the cultural attache uh, uh, of Croatia to the United Nations, where he was uh, based in New York. And so I asked uh, uh, Dr. Tony, uh, you know, in my conversations with him, if he knew of any work I could do, because I was in desperately need of money. And he says, oh, I'm going to introduce you to this guy, uh, Yakov, you know. And uh, I asked him, uh, how, how do you get introduced to, uh, to Yakov? He says, oh, that was through some broad I was banging. So um, Dr. Tony was old style, Long Island. Uh, uh, he wasn't part of the mob, but he buddied with the, the mobs, uh, Italian mafia in Long Island, New York. And so I met uh, with uh, Yakov, and I didn't find this out till later. Uh, but uh, you know, Yakov says, "Oh, Dr. Tony had recommended you. You're a great uh, author." And <laughs> this is funny because at that time I was really confused by this. At that time, the only book I had published was a humor book. It was called the Official Alien Abductees Handbook. Uh, you know, it was again a humor book. And so I was just confused by this. And, and I eventually found out that the reason uh, Yakov had uh, uh, invited me to you know, write this book was that he had believed uh, Dr. Tony, I was his great author, because Dr. Tony had saved the life of his daughter. She had some health condition, and Dr. Tony intervened and did that. So uh, you know, good for him. Good for Tony, good for Yakov. It would have been nice if they had told me this, but that's the way these things happen. And so I was, as I said, deep in debt. I, I really was interested in uh, uh, getting out of debt. And I was also interested in taking this journey 
uh, wanted to learn more about the Balkans. And uh, hopefully, to be honest, at that time, as a recently divorced uh, single guy, I was hoping to meet some uh, Balkan women who might be impressed by an American passport. <laughs> oh, and, I'm happily um, married now. I've got two kids, so that's, that's in the past. <laughs> that's in the past, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So, um, well, um, I say that most journalists would have just taken the money and just you know, yeah. accepted the changes that were suggested. So what prompted you to rebel? Uh, I started speaking to people other than the, the politicians who uh, Yakov introduced me to. Uh, I started speaking to uh, dissident journalists. Uh, I started mm. speaking uh, with uh, a political and anti-war activists. I started to speak to people who, just because they wrote some slightly negative things about Twitchman, their cars were bombed early in the morning. Uh, so I, I started to understand the way uh, Tuchman had uh, control of, uh, of the press there. In fact, it was Marty Granich, his advisor, who told me that, frankly, you know, their regime has more control you know, of, uh, of television than they do of the press, the written press. And when I told that to Tuchman, I said, uh, you're Marty Granich, uh, your, your senior advisor, had told me off the record that you have more control of TV than you had the press. And he excelled, he said, went like this, Mati, Mati. And he says, let me tell you one thing. I know your intentions are good, but we here in Croatia have more freedom of press than you do in the United States. Wow. That wow. gives you another insight into his way of thinking. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it was, it was on one night, it was a rainy night in Sarajevo. Yakov didn't want me to come to Sarajevo, but I realized that Sarajevo was at the heart, that Bosnia was at the heart of Tuchman's story, to whether to hang him on these crimes or to uh, let him, you know, let him scurry away from it. And so I said uh, to Yakov, says, I, I need to go. They said, no, no, Joe, you must not go. There was a bomb that, that happened in the church that I forbid you from going. I said, okay, we'll see about that. And I went directly to his travel agent. I said, Yakov wants me to go to uh, Sarajevo. Please, you know, put a ticket on his account and uh, book me a room at the Holiday Inn. Uh, so I landed there, and uh, and that's when I started to to get a, a full picture by being there, and and meeting the people there. And so it was one rainy night in Sarajevo. I said, you know, I'm split. This I was. Uh, on the horns of a dilemma that I had created myself. Because if I had thought a little bit through, if I went past my naivete and my desire for, uh, for, for uh, money and, and for meeting women, I would have seen that it would be impossible to do what they asked, you know, write this glowing hagiography and, and not be known as paid propagandist, uh, and not to ask myself, am I okay with that? Uh, or if I was to write something that was totally honest, uh, honest and come, you know, be forthright in saying the crimes that Tuchman was directly responsible for, uh, then I would be known as an enemy of the state. Uh, not something that I had thought through until I realized that, oh, even though I don't have a car, they know where I am. They know mm -hmm. they, they they were following me. I know that they were following me everywhere I went, 
And it was funny to see that same black sedan parked outside my hotel uh, following me. And in the case, I said, uh, well, I've got to make a choice because I can't do both. So I made a choice uh, not to write the book that they paid me for, but to write the book to, to give voice to the voiceless, to give voice to the, uh, to the people of the Balkans, the Serbs, the Croatians, and Bosnians, who didn't choose this war. You know? And the people who, who fought, who were whipped up, uh, by extreme nationalism and by this extreme propaganda, primarily back then in television, you can go see the, you know, the anti-Serb, you know, commercials and the anti, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they were told that those, you're your neighbors, the people that you've known for generations, you, you kids go to school together, you, you, you intermarry, you know, uh, they're, they're the ones causing your problems, you know. They're the ones that are going to be out to get you, okay? Because mm -hmm. they have a different nationality. They're a different ethnicity. And so how easily someone's identity can be triggered into torching your neighbor's house. No, it's yeah, that, that, that's really terrible. That's really terrible. What the propaganda can can do, and unfortunately, I would say that not enough is written about it, and not enough is written. I mean, my hypothesis now, I want to talk a little bit theoretically, is that when the the elites had the power to control the narrative, for instance, I was taught during my years in the university that people are rational they have the right to choose that you cannot censor anything that um, the the media effects are uh, exaggerated the propaganda effects are exaggerated and that people have you know um reason and they make their decisions according to their you know best interests and now suddenly i think not enough money was invested in really studying the, the effects of propaganda. And they only started to, to discuss propaganda and to discuss censorship when they no longer controlled the narrative and they ended up with somebody like Donald Trump on their hands. And things didn't go according to the plan. And when they were not able to control the, the, the narrative, this is my perspective. No, it's true. And what, what Trump did was very clever because he... Uh, he fused his uh, politics, you know, his, his run for the presidential campaign and, and to be his reelection on identity, it's about identity politics, you know, okay, so the liberals, the, they're, they're the, the pedophiles and you, you are the real uh, earth, the people of the earth, the common, the hard workers, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, so they're out to get you, all right? So once you ha are able to infuse politics or political agenda into a person's ideology, then you do control them. It is like being part of the cult. And, and, the, and the part of it is that our identity is directly you know, connected to the, the, what they call the, the mammalian brain or the lizard brain, the amygdala, the actual word for it, which is part of the limbic system. And that's responsible for processing our emotions. And because the cognitive science has proven that we make our decisions subconsciously and that then our logical brain, you know, our cerebellum makes, it makes the 
justification. Reasons, the reasons, the excuses, right. Uh, and that this, this survival instinct that the amygdala has is part of the fight or flight response. Will it eat me? Can I eat it? Can I have sex with it? You know, uh, this, which you can, you can control that. It's very hard, you know, to, you know, uh, basically deprogram somebody whose identity is, is fused directly into their, uh, you know, amygdala. Yes, so, yeah. yes. So tell me a little bit about the reaction of your colleagues, the co-workers, the media. How was your effort in bringing, you know, the truth or your version of the truth and giving the opportunity for the people that you said were voiceless in this conflict to have their say in what happened? How was this perceived? Were you lauded? Were you criticized? Were you ignored? What was the reaction? Yes, all of those, uh, <laughs> depending on the group. You know, it's like it's like the old Balkan saying, why should I be a minority in, in your country and you could be a minority in mine? So I could tell directly by the way they speak in their political stance, whether they were a Serb or a Croat or a Bosniak. Uh, but again, even within those, those countries, of course, there are uh, divisions, the political ideology, okay? Just like you see in, in, in most countries, right? You've got the hardcore extremists on the left, the hardcore extremists on, on the right, and you've got the people in the middle who just want to get by, who just want to feed their children. Those are the major, those are the people I'm talking about. So they understood and were really, really positive. The response was very positive. I did uh, in 2002 a one man show. Uh, though detailing my, my, my whole trip there and journey and people who were expats came up and were thanking me. I, I connected with people from uh, different uh, expat communities uh, from, from the Balkans. And these were people who it grouped, they were Serbs and they were Bosniaks and, you know, and they were Croats uh, to help navigate their way as expats into the American system. You know, how, how can you get benefits? How can you get, uh, uh, you know, employment? Where are the opportunities being? You know, how, how can we, you know, how can we give you therapeutic help and uh, to, you know, for your, uh, you know, for the, uh, the traumas that you faced during the war? Uh, so uh, there's a particular group in New York called Raccoon. I hooked up with people there and I did some I benefit for them. And the, the so so those the, those are the people who gave me the positive responses. The people who gave me the negative responses were, or I knew exactly where what side on the spectrum they were, and so it was it was just to be expected. But the American press and the international press. I mean, I did several interviews with, you know, uh, Balkan press and particularly Croatian press, and more recently Balkan Insight uh, and uh, different podcast interviews. The. Uh, they they would you know you know once or twice a year you know do some sort of story on me, but I couldn't get any traction at all from the Americans. I couldn't get any any of my articles published in there. It was okay. I remember the the beginning of the war. Okay, America, the the West America's response was we don't have a dog in that fight. This was Bush under Bush. Uh, you know Clinton came in. It was the same type of policy. You know uh, it wasn't until you know until you know. The American public, after seeing images in CNN of the Sarajevo, you know, uh, 
the market bombing, that pressure started to come on him just as he was coming up to get to his re-election campaign. So it was a political decision. The whole book talked about it in his book. And uh, and the once, but remind me to get back to Holbrook, won't you? And so the, uh, the response was like, this, this wasn't happening. So um, I had, uh, you know, still, uh, I, I didn't take care of my debt because I was still putting uh, credit card debt on uh, my company. And then um, I, I started the uh, uh, internet video company. I had an opportunity to try to uh, get get into the market early in that because the digital video editing and filming uh, market was getting, which was the bulk of my income at the point was getting less and less because the introduction of digital video uh, equipment and laptop computers, des desktop computers was made more affordable for my clients to do their own uh, editing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I got into that and, uh, and then I had um, started building that, that internet company up until uh, 9 11, where I had two of my major clients were in the World Trade Center, and uh, it was a, a tragic loss. Uh, so I got uh, into bankruptcy and uh, I just uh, started to just uh, uh, return to the story, did my one man show, uh, because now I was just um, living on, uh, you know, uh, on the benefits that I got from New York and some help from relatives and i started you know to decide okay i'm going to uh you know uh you know, write this book uh i i started i started seriously to to write the book once i was able to get uh, a stable income through uh the last uh staff job i had in this uh large public media communications company a very well-paying job and i was able to do that uh up until the time i decided to to quit the job uh which my set a date we, my wife and i was brazilian we were going to plan to move down to brazil we had two uh young young girls uh so it was a good time to move and uh i was ready to give them my notice uh in uh in let's see in uh, january of 2009 when in december uh of 2008 uh i had my immediate uh, superior and the head of ahr come to me and said Sorry, Joe, we're going to have left you go because, you know, we still need to cut costs and blah, blah, blah. I thanked them. They said, why are you thanking us? I said, well, because now I get a severance and now I get unemployment and now I can move to Brazil with some money in my pocket. Uh, so that's when I wrote the book and I started to get a little bit more of, uh, interest in the book, uh, but still uh, not enough to, uh, to make a, a dent in my, you know, income. So I was uh, just focusing on, you know, taking care of the family here and uh, trying to eventually work on a documentary, which I said that we're about halfway through filming. And, uh, and so I, th I hope with that, that we're going to get uh, a lot more uh, notice because just by uh, showing uh, clips and, and rough cuts and uh, excerpts of it, uh, uh, different uh, film markets, the feedback has been extremely positive and uh we do we are uh, close to getting the rest of the financing together and maybe with the help of your audience even 
even sooner than later. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, we have a small community of donors and also to the viewers, if you like what you saw, please support uh, Joe's movie because I think it's a very good initiative. It's in one thing to have a book, but when you have a documentary, you can actually see here things, images, and it's much more alive. So I really think it will be very valuable especially for Eastern European countries, because while you were discussing, I saw so many uh, common points with what happened in Romania, starting with the fact that the, the right-wing extremists were starting to be, you know, embellished, so to speak, and presented to the public in a very positive light, uh, and ending up with the idea that probably the Hungarians, because, you know, here in Eastern Europe, in the Balkans, you have a lot of uh, problems. And we have one with Hungary because there are two districts in Romania. 90% of the population is Hungarian. And it's a good opportunity for xenophobes, you know, to push their agenda while demonizing this minority. I mean... It's uh, all these things. And I think we were lucky in the sense, this is the last, uh, the, the last speculation that I want you to comment on. I think in a sense, Romania was lucky to have pushed Ceausescu out of power and have a revolution because if Ceausescu would have stayed in power, probably this type of ethnic conflict would have happened to Romania. I think Yugoslavia was the scene of secret services and especially Western ones really pushing people and encouraging this type of, of hatred. And I think it was Yugoslavia because it was a successful socialist project and it refused to die on its own it refused to you know confirm the narrative that socialism is bad yeah it's you make a lot of great points there and i i i, I agree with practically all of that i i see that that in fact when a country has has these extremist factions they're being pushed in in uh, in different directions uh, it's the people in, who want more power and the people who want more money, because power means you can get more money. Uh, they are the, one, are the ones that are in, in control. And it's, it's up to the people who, just like your brave people who fought against Ceausescu, it's up against them. It's up against the individuals. Because I, I heard something, tell me this is true, that they're that the, the Ceausescu's boarded a helicopter and the helicopter took off. It was about to take them out of the country until the pilot, is this true? The pilot saw that there was an enormous crowd of the population that was against them. And he, th he thought to himself, I'm on the wrong side. And that is that when he decided to bring them down or not? I think it's a little bit of an embellished story in the sense that Ceausescu started to give his speech to a crowd that was mostly of beer people because there were power shortages and food shortages. We, we fed ourselves, you know, and having rations. Um, we, I basically, all my childhood, I remember going with my grandmother to the store and buying a certain amount of bread, oil, and all the rest. It was 
horrible because he wanted to give back the loan he took for from the International Monetary Fund. But uh, I think it was mainly orchestrated by the army. I think the or- mm-hmm. army had already turned against him. Uh-huh. And I think uh, he signed his death certificate uh in July, I think, when Gorbachev came to Romania and they spent the whole night fighting and screaming at each other. And I think that was the point when Ceausescu was, uh, was in theory, he was out and practically it happened in, in uh-huh. December. Interesting, interesting. Because in Romania, let me tell you that the security apparatus was and still is very powerful. So this idea of the pilot not obeying the order, you know, and taking Ceausescu to Târgoviște and not (laughs) in Bulgaria or someplace else, I think it's a little bit over the top because probably they would have sent another plane just to kill them if they would have found out because oh. the, the security apparatus is still and was very, very powerful. And even today, it's we have a lot of secret service agents and basically almost v- we have very, very inefficient parliamentary control and oversight of the, over their activities. So, so nothing without their knowing, you know. So, Maria, are you in any danger just by speaking about this? or No. Uh, I mean, the way they do it, if, they, if you are very popular, I'm not very popular, so <laughs> I oh. enjoy, you know, the benefit of being, because if you want to get into power and if you want to become somebody really important, especially in politics, then you have to somehow sign a deal with them in the sense that, for instance, in Romania, you have most people that are in position of power that graduated some form of security studies master or going to a program in security organized by the Secret Services Academy or having some sort of link, you know, to the whole thing or signing an agreement. For instance, even if you are a counselor to somebody who's in power in Romania, you have to sign a, a contract allowing the secret service to investigate you and the members of your family and you don't have the right to know what their conclusions are. Oh, so, so even if you were enemy of the state, you wouldn't know it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, and, you know, they, they gather information about you and then they, you are, you know, like a clock and they have the key, you know, to turn mm-hmm. it and then... So, well, that's it. Black, uh, see, blackmail is is another big, uh, you know, political leverage, you know, uh, to use. And so we, we have to think about all of these things. We have to think about the economics. We have to think about follow the money. Think about the the message that's being played. Who's the message messenger and who's behind the messenger? You know, qui bono? Who benefits? You know, as you know, as the old Latin phrase goes. Yes, uh, but, but I, I did. Think- Please, please go ahead. No, no, I, I'm just sorry. I, I, I'm hopping around because I do want to mention this before I forget uh, about, you know, the fall of Srebrenica. We talk about genocide here. Uh, and, you know, the the, the role that uh, Holbrook and his friendship slash rivalry with Anthony Lake uh, comes into play. Because I, I was reminded of it because uh, politics is also personal. He talked about the personal battle between Tercescu and Gorbachev. All right, so <clears throat> this is something that 
uh, up until you know recently was not known. So um, you've got Anthony Lake, who was the uh, America's National Security Advisor. Now he told uh, the contact group. Contact group is the group of American and, and British and French, etc. You know the West's uh, negotiating group. Uh, to end the war, uh, he told the group's negotiator, Robert Fraser, that the safe areas, remember that the people, you know, fled into Srebrenica because they were safe areas, you know, uh, the United Nations said, you're safe here, no one can harm you. Uh, they fled into Srebrenica because of these safe areas. Well, <clears throat> Fraser said that these safe areas constituted a monstrous uh, excrescence within Serbian territory. And that that Fraser reported to to Lake that Milosevic would not agree to peace unless they had a modified map that seeded the safe areas. Okay, so then um, what happened was that just to make a really painful, horrible, tragic, long story short, um, the safe areas fell. Uh, the UN uh, allowed uh, the women and children to leave the areas and then killed all of the men and the boys on uh, mass um, 8,000 of them the the rivalry between Holbrook and Lake and Holbrook had said in a 2005 interview that he was under initial instructions to sacrifice Srebrenica uh, now that would have come from Lake now um, I don't know how much Holbrook pushed back on that. When I when I interviewed him, he told me that he was confused by Lake's decision. And then I read this book just that came out, I think, a year or two ago, a biography on on Richard Holbrook, where it said that uh, they had a falling out because uh, Holbrook was um, sleeping with uh, Tony Lake's wife. So I think this whole thing came down to because you're fucking my wife. I'm going to fuck over Srebrenica, which was your, you know, cause to save it. Now, I'm not saying that's the reason. The reason goes, you know, much greater than, than that little thing. But it, it does play a part. The reason is because the UN, uh, the, the troops were, were captured, okay? And uh, that stopped, the, the, you know, NATO from bombing them. And then you've had the Dutch battalion giving in, and then you've had the, the UN general giving in to, to the Serbs. You know, uh, everyone believed that you know the Serbs would live up to their agreement, and meanwhile, the people who were in the safe areas believed that the West would live up to their agreement. And unfortunately, and tragedy of massive proportion unfolded. I think, yeah, the, the, it, it's very important to have these conversations and um, you are asking who's benefiting, but I hope the viewers, the viewers that saw this show are at least benefiting for being in contact with somebody who was so close to the Croatian par power circles during the 90s and had the courage to, to push back and to tell what... Uh, you thought it was true. I think that's very important, very rare. I'm sorry that you didn't get much traction in the uh, mainstream press in the United States, but I'm not surprised because 
what you told went against the mainstream narrative, probably, that wanted to portray this uh, Croatian president and somebody closer to uh, the character that he himself wanted to present to to the world. So, um, yeah, this is it. Uh, thank you so much for, we've been talking for almost an hour. So thank you so much for sharing these details about your work and about what you did. To the viewers, if you like what you saw, please consider supporting um, our guest. Uh, he is about to finish his documentary on this very interesting story that took place in the Balkans during the 90s. And uh, also support us go to our page patreon, um, patreon.com slash the barricade and um, consider supporting us as I told you we have a very small community of donors to whom we are very thankful and if you can extend your generosity to our guests that would be wonderful thanks so much again for being here Joe thank you Maria it's been a pleasure okay